for how to follow your son, Jesus, walking as he walked in this world that hates you so viciously in these dark times. Teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the uh, Gospel of Matthew lays out, as the author outlined it, you know it alternates between narrative and discourse, narrative and discourse. We're in a narrative section, chapters 19 through 22, in which the king displays his authority. And we see this in a series of threes. First, he, he rocked his disciples in chapter 19, verse 1 to 2028. 20, then having rocked his disciples, then he rocked Jerusalem in chapter 20, 29 through chapter 21, 22. In this section, Jesus is rocking the leaders, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And first, they challenge him regarding his authority. We saw that in chapter 21, 23 through 22, 14. And now we see him trying, them trying to stump the king. They try to stump him three times. There are three encounters in which they try to stump him. First, they challenge him regarding his authority. And here, they try to challenge him uh, by stumping him with what they think is a difficult, difficult question. So, if this were like a TV show and this were a blurb announcing the show, the show might be called Those Wacky Jewish Leaders. And the blurb might go something like, well, this week on those wacky Jewish leaders, the boys decide to outsmart Jesus. Hilarity ensues, and their plans do not go well for them. And that's indeed what we see this week. Interesting to note that this is the first of three attempts to stump him. Uh, today, the Pharisees, today's section, the Pharisees and the Herodians try to stump him regarding the subject of taxes. Then the Sadducees try to stump him about the resurrection. And then again, the Pharisees pop up and try to stump him as to which commandment is the great commandment in the law. And these are meant as tests. In fact, the verb test, perazzo, is used in verses 18 and 35. So there are three trials, three tests. Hmm, where have we seen three trials, three tests of the Lord Jesus before in this gospel? Well, we saw it at the beginning of the gospel in the wilderness where Satan tested Jesus with three tests. So how do you think this test is going to turn out for the people who want to humiliate Jesus? About the same as that one did. This is Jesus, after all. So let's take a look, and we're going to take two passes through this topic today. The first, expounding the text. The second, um, considering some of the truths and their applications to us. So Roman numeral one, Roman numeral one, opening the text. It's chapter 22, verses 15 through 22 that we look at. Opening the text, beginning by Matthew setting the stage. Letter A, capital letter A, Matthew setting the stage. So this is opening the text. And first Matthew begins by setting the stage in verses 15 through 16a. I've translated that for you in your outline. Then the Pharisees went and took counsel together so that they might ensnare him in word. And they sent to him their disciples. Well, that's where we're going to pause for this portion. Now these, Jesus, are going to say are hypocriti, they're hypocrites. That word hypocriti is used for play actors who put on a mask so people would see what they wanted to see. This is what I want you to think I am, not what they really were. And Jesus will later call these ones hypocrites. So that's why I call it a stage and speak of it in theatrical terms. So the stage is set here. And who are the players? Well, then the Pharisees went and took counsel together that they might ensnare him in word. The Pharisees we've met before, they are a, a religious group. They're re the religious establishment, uh, respected by most Jews in that time. Uh, they had a, an oral tradition that they held to be equal in authority with the law itself. There was the law of Moses given by God, but then there was the tradition of the elders, which told them, they said, how to walk in this law. And they were of equal authority. And in fact, as Jesus showed more than once, actually their law, as always happens with human tradition and dogma, their law actually took precedence in practice. In theory, maybe not, but in practice, it took precedence over the law of Moses. That's the Pharisees. 
They're the religious establishment. They are nationalists, we should notice, when it comes to Israel. They were nationalists. They were not fond of Roman rule, which is surprising when we then find who are they paired up with? The Herodians. The Herodians. Now, we don't know a lot about the Herodians, actually. There's not a lot about them outside of the New Testament, and next to nothing. So we have to do some speculating from what we know, what we see in Scripture, and what we get from the Word itself, which means partisans of Herod. So this would obviously not be partisans of uh, Herod the Great, who's long dead. It would be partisans of Herod Antipas, who ruled from 4 BC, the death of Herod the Great, to 39 AD, Herod Antipas. And therefore, as supporters of Herod Antipas, they would be friendly to Rome. Okay, what's the problem with that? What did we just say about the Pharisees a second ago? They were nationalists. They were not friendly to Rome. The Herodians were friendly to Rome. As a satellite of Rome, they were okay with that. Herod ruled in Galilee, where Jesus was from. Uh, they, he no longer ruled in, the, uh, in Judea. They probably hoped that he would regain that rule again. But he was very intense about people paying his taxes in Galilee. So if they could get Jesus to speak against taxes... Well, had Herod shown that he was willing to kill religious leaders who opposed his purposes? Like, for instance, who? John the Baptist. So they could be sure if they could find some way to make Jesus odious in Herod's sight, well, they could get rid of Jesus that way. Now, would this appeal to the Pharisees? Yes, thank you. Yes, it would. So... What is it that brought these two otherwise opposed groups together? Their hatred of Jesus. So what's a little phrase that we use? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they found in each other the enemy of their enemy. So this is an interesting thing. Uh, One of the worst sermons I heard before I was a Christian that I can remember. As a Christian, I went to a Methodist church to hear a Christian sermon and hear what that was like. I would have been 16 or 17. And he, he preached about how um, at the crucifixion of Jesus, how Luke says that Pilate and Herod had been opposed to each other and now they became friends. And this, this preacher said, you see, there's that Jesus always bringing people together. And I thought, oh, dude. <laughs> I mean, even as a non-Christian, I thought, yeah, that's not what it's saying. And in here, yeah, well, Jesus is bringing people together, indeed, in, in hatred of him. And I see a form of this today, by the way, a form of it, I say. I see people who have risen to prominence with the title of being evangelical leaders. They, they, they were brought to the dance, so to speak, by evangelicals. But now they're in the spotlight, and they love that spotlight, and they love the praises of the New York Times. They love writing for the New York Times. They love the world's adulation. And you see them partnering with people who hate Jesus, although ostensibly they are themselves evangelicals. But uh, their hatred of people who are loyally following the the Scripture um, brings them together. And you sadly can see that happening again and again. But I digress. Those are the players, the Pharisees and the Herodians, otherwise opponents, but brought together now out of their hatred of Jesus. What is the play? Well, their play is to get Jesus ensnared in word. Verse seven, uh, 15 says, so that they might ensnare him in word. Now that word ensnare is a verb that means to trap him. It's a hunting word. Like you'd lay out a net for an animal to step into, and then you would snare that animal, a a net or a noose or something like that. And that's what they mean to do with Jesus, because after all, he's just a a dumb, bumbling animal. Not nearly, he's no match for the superior firepower of their massive intellects, right? They're definitely going to be able to trip Jesus up in a word, in something he says. And so uh, they are, I mean, wouldn't you like to have seen that brain session? I mean, mean, my goodness, they, 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 oh, I know, I got a great idea. Nothing else is working. How about if we just fool him and make him say something stupid? And then we we can get the government down on him. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Yay. And then there there they go. And boy, it does not work out well for them. Predictably. So that's the stage set. Let's let her be. Let's see the trial tried. 
So they got a trial all set up. They have something they're going to try. They're going to test Jesus. They're going to tempt Jesus. They're sure going to try to do that in verses 16b through 17. And I see two steps in what they do. Step one is flattery. Little letter A there. Step one is flattery. They say, teacher, we know, and then they say three things that they know. We know that you are true and that the way of God in truth you are teaching. It's very awkward English, but I just want to show you what they push up front, that they want to emphasize this is the way of God in truth that he's teaching. They know that. And that it does not matter to you concerning anyone, for you do not regard the status of men. So this is what he is, by the way. (laughs) Are all those true statements? They're all true statements. I mean, that, that indeed is Jesus. Do they actually believe that? No. What's the word for somebody who's trying to fake you out to think they are what they aren't? Why, that would be hypocrite. That's what Jesus is about to call them. But that's what they're doing. They're coming and they're pretending to be what they aren't. Now, they are none of these things. They're not true. They're pretending. They don't teach the way of God and truth. They're slaved uh, to tradition in one hand. They're slaved to a political power on the other hand. But they're neither of them teaching the way of God and truth. And they're neither of them not swayed by the status of men, by, by superficial things. So they approach him with, with flattery here, meaning to get him to drop his guard so that they can strike home the, uh, the arrow, so they can trip the snare and trap him. Now, there's no doubt that for a lot of people this, this would work. This, this, I mean, I've seen it work. You get to where you like to hear flattery. You're approached in such a way, and I'm sure that some of these fallen evangelicals were approached just like this, that we know that, that you're not like them. You're not like those unwashed, slope-foreheaded, knuckle-dragging rednecks who, who believe the Bible and believe stuff like creation in six days and all this stuff. And, and who, re- I mean, I know you say you're pro-life, but I know you really don't want to see abortion outlawed. You really don't want to see women go to jail or doctors. You know, you, I, I know you've got to say what you've got to say, but you're much better than that. We know that. And there are people hearing that will think, yeah, I really do like hearing that. <laughs> I do like being liked by these people. I like the spotlight. I like that reputation. And I'm sure they tell themselves in some cases, I can use this to serve God. And, and well, you know, our, our enemy is a lot smarter than we are. And he's very tricksy. And that sort of thing works on some people. And they thought it would work on Jesus. Uh, you are true, they say, meaning that he, he is, uh, there's no pretext in him, that he's just what you see. Well, check. I mean, that is true. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And the way of God you're teaching in truth. Well, indeed, he didn't teach anything but the word the Father put on his tongue. He, he taught the words of God. Everything he said was true. So, check, check. And it does not matter to you concerning anyone, for you do not regard the status of men. Now, let me explain that a little bit. It doesn't matter to you about anyone. Now, there's a way you could take that that's not true, meaning that he doesn't care about people. That, that clearly is not true. What they're saying is you're not swayed by people. You don't pitch what you're going to say to get approval, to get acceptance, to be popular. <laughs> Clearly, that's, that is the case with Jesus. And, and what is the reason for that? Well, I've translated it, for you do not regard the status of men. Now, literally, the Greek text says you do not look into the face of men. Now, that can be interpreted a couple of different ways. Here's the way I've interpreted it. That the, the face is the status. It's the public face. And Jesus is not impressed by public face. Well, is that true? Well, that's certainly true. That, that's certainly, I mean, you see that. He, he doesn't back down before anyone. It doesn't matter whether he's talking to some lowly local official or whether he's talking to the governor who has his life in his hands. He's going to cut it straight. Uh, no matter what, no matter where. But there's another meaning that's possible if you just take it literally, you don't look into the face of men, meaning that, that he didn't look at people's face to see if he was saying the right thing. And if, if he's starting to lose them, then he shifts his message a little bit. Could mean that. The meanings aren't that far apart, but I, I've told you the one that I favor. Um, at any rate, Jesus doesn't pitch what he's saying to gain the approval of anyone. He just says it straight. So now, Think of this, first of all, by this flattery, they, they've, 
They've utterly persuaded Jesus that they're on his side, right? Well, that's the goal. <laughs> that's the intent. I, this is a friendly people uh, I've got here. I, I can really speak candidly to these folks because they're my supporters. They know what I'm doing is what they hope he'll say. But then w- what is the other purpose for that? Well, they, they want him to speak candidly so that they can use that against him because that's what the trap is. They want him to say something that will either cause, call, either cause Rome to fall on him or will alienate his fan base. I'll explain that more in just a second. But this flattery, that, that's a powerful thing. There's a couple of Proverbs that it's like they're written as comments on this scene. Proverbs 29.5. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. <laughs> Isn't that exactly what they're doing here? They're flattering him, although it's not strictly flattery because it's true in his case, but they don't mean it. They're doing it to spread a net for his steps, to bring down his guard, to make him less careful, and to catch him. But Jesus is more like another proverb, Proverbs 117. I, I like this one as a comment. In Proverbs 117, it says, For it is no use that a net is spread in the sight of any bird. In other words, when you spread a, you, you, you set up a trap in the sight of the animal you mean to trap, it's not going to be stupid enough to fall into your trap. And that's exactly what they're doing. And is Jesus as smart as a bird? Well, he's considerably smarter than birds, who, by the way, he created. So, uh, yeah, they're flattery. That's their first step. And the second step is flummox. Flummox, F-L-U-M-M-O-X. If you don't know that word, don't use that word a lot, it means to fool him. They, 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 well, they want to panic him, actually. What they want to do is they, they want to put him in a, in a place where he's just lost, and therefore he takes a wrong step. They want to confuse him. They want to mess him up. They want to trap him. And so they say in verse 17, therefore say to us, say to us truthfully and unguardedly, say to us what it seems like to you. Is it allowable to give poll tax to Caesar or not? But they're just asking an innocent question, right? And they're fans, they're supporters. Why not just tell them? Is it allowable? In other words, is it okay with God? Is it moral? Is it acceptable? Is it, is it in the law to give poll tax to Caesar or not? Well, to understand why this is a loaded question, we need to understand a bit about the background. I'll quote to you from a New Testament scholar, F.D. Bruner, who says this, Palestine was not independent. It was a colonized satellite of Rome, of Roman imperial power. As in all countries occupied by a foreign power, political and religious feeling ran high when the subject was the relationship of the colonized to the colonizer. The religious revolutionary question was, should the people of God give money to and support an idolatrous and religiously debased state and its cult of emperor worship. That's the religious question that they would feel deeply. The revolutionary-minded thought, definitely not. And several years later, some Israelites refused the tax and went into the hills and became guerrilla fighters using violence against pagan colonialists and against collaborators. Some, some Pharisees may have suspected that if Jesus allowed himself to be called the son of David, which he had or had not, did he allow people to call him son of David? Well, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Well, if he did that, then he might even share revolutionary convictions. Indeed, if Jesus really held royal messianic convictions about himself, wouldn't he have to put an end to Caesar's pretensions, beginning with Caesar's tax? The Pharisees' question about taxes to Caesar was exactly the kind of question that carelessly or imperfectly answered could fatally compromise Jesus. So what was this poll tax? Well, it was a poll tax. It was a a tax on individual adult Jews once a year, uh, a, a tax that they paid. Now, this word poll tax is a Matthean word. It's used once in Mark, otherwise three times in Matthew. 
you would expect Matthew the tax collector to use an exact term like that. It's a yearly head tax, and Josephus, a historian of that time who is sometimes reliable, sometimes not, probably is reliable where he said, says that the Jews hated this, the Jews hated this tax. They hated this tax. So notice, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment, but notice, what do they say is allow, allowable to what? To give poll tax to Caesar. I'll return to that in a moment. But notice for now, they say to give poll tax to Caesar. So what is the trap? You, you probably see it, but let's just make sure we do. What's the trap? Their thought is, well, Jesus had already revolted against the religious establishment, right? Where? In the temple. What had he done? He stopped the buying and selling in the temple, and he challenged the leadership of the temple. So he already had been a revolutionary against the religious establishment. So maybe they could provoke him to be a revolutionary against the civil authority? Well, why not? Why not? He seemingly is that kind of guy. So what is the jam that they hoped to get him into? They wanted to put him in a situation where either of his answers would end him. That if he said to them, oh yeah, absolutely, give the poll tax to Caesar, well then so much for his populist appeal. All his people are, are, are going to want nothing to do with him. If he looks like he, he's a kiss, well, they would spin it this way, wouldn't they? He's a kiss up to Rome. He, he's, he's a sellout. He's a collaborator. And, and nobody doesn't hate a collaborator. He's a collaborator. Uh, and so if they could get him to say, sure, pay the tax, well, then that, that would end him in his popular support. But if he said, no, don't pay the tax, well, then go on the hotline to Rome, and Rome would kill him, and that would be the end of him. But either way, they end his ministry. It's foolproof. It's genius, I tell you, genius, they thought. The setup, then, is the Pharisees opposed Rome. The Herodians favored Rome. So either, either answer that he's got the people right there ready to jump on him, and either party has the other party as witnesses. So if the Pharisees get the answer they want to spin, the Herodians can go along and say, yeah, it's exactly what he said. Or if he gives the answer that the Herodians want, the Pharisees can go into court with the Romans and say, yeah, indeed he did say, don't pay the taxes. So you say, oh, you know, I, I guess Jesus is doomed, right? I mean, who can possibly get out of such a brilliant trap? Well, let's find out, because we have the, two, the teacher's tutorial in verses 18 through 21. And first we read his assessment of them. So the first thing he judges is them. <laughs> he has a little word about them. How, how, did, their, how did their play go? What, what's his review? How many stars does he give their acting job? Uh, verse 18, but Jesus, because he knew their wickedness, said, why are you trying to test me, hypocrites? <laughs> Oops. It doesn't seem to be working very well. He sees exactly what they're doing, and he sees exactly what they are, because as John says in the Gospel of John chapter 2, Jesus knows what's in man. He knows the heart of men, and he knows their heart. So, you know, if they were honest, if they were honest and they heard Jesus say this, saw that he knew their evil hearts, their wicked hearts, and if they heard Jesus say, why are you testing me, hypocrites? If they were honest, wouldn't they turn to each other and say, he gets us. He gets us. Because indeed, yes, he gets them. And indeed, we can say he gets us too. Not the way the commercial means it, though. But Jesus absolutely gets us. And that's why Jesus says, repent. That's his first sermon, remember? Matthew 4, 17. Repent. Well, do you tell people to repent who are already okay with God? And God's got their back and he's just ready to accept them and wash their feet and help them in whatever they want to do. Do you say repent in that situation? You say repent when things are fundamentally wrong. 
fundamentally wrong and need to be completely turned around. He gets us all right, and he says, repent. He gets us all right. He says in Matthew 15, what? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, slanders, false witness, thefts, murders, adulteries. All of these come out of the heart of men, and they defile the man, Matthew 15, 19. He gets us all right. He gets us, and so that's why he says in Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He says that because he gets us. And he says in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, he gets us all right. He gets us and sees that we are not at peace with God. He sees our hearts are not right. He sees our hearts are slaves to sin. And he says that we're, he sees that we're going to die in our sins unless we're saved. And he sees the only way to be saved is to repent and believe in him. Oh, he gets us all right. Praise God, he gets us. And he speaks the truth of God and is not swayed by anyone. And so he does to them. Why? Because he gets them. (laughs) He totally gets them. Hypocrites, why are you trying to test me? That's his assessment. Secondly, an, an assignment. Verse 19, he says, Display for me the coin for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. A couple of little interesting things. The word used for coin here, this is the only time it occurs in the New Testament. And why is that interesting? Well, it's interesting, again, that Matthew, the tax collector, should be the one to use such precise terminology when it comes to money matters and matters of money due to the government. So he uses the exact right word. Show me the coin for the poll tax. Well, here's another interesting thing. Why does he have to tell them to show him a coin? He doesn't have one. He doesn't have one on him. But do they? Oh, yeah. I got one right here. Oops. Well, now, if they're going to argue that the money is defiling, what are they doing walking around with it in their pockets? Eek. It's a bit of a problem. So he doesn't have one on them. They do have one in their pocket. Matthew uses the precise term. He says, you, gotta, you, you want to talk about that, then show me one. So they, they bring one over, and they show it to him. Now, they they're not talking anymore. They had so much to say a second ago, and now they're silent. What happened? Something go wrong with this foolproof plan? Uh, so we see his assignment, and then we see the arraignment in verses 20 through 21. Here's where they, he explodes them, basically. And he says to them, whose is this image and the inscription? They say to him, Caesar's they really don't have a lot to say now. It's just one word in Greek. It's just one word. They had so much to say a second ago, and now it's just one word. Why? Well, I think because they know the jig is up, because they, they're seeing that bird fly off into the heavens with their, with their net lying there unmolested, and the bird's going off with all the seeds. So uh, the coin, what coin did they show him? Uh, historian Craig Keener says, this. He says, the silver denarius of Tiberius is probably the coin that they showed him. The silver denarius of Tiberius, including a portrait of his head and minted especially at Lyon, circulated there in this period. The side bearing his image also included a superscription saying, and then the Latin, which is translated, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, it bore a feminine image, possibly of the Empress Livia. Um, referring to the high priest of Roman religion. The emperor controlled the production of the coins. That's noteworthy. The emperor controlled the production of the coins, and they were officially his property. Yet, like it or not, Jews had to use this coin. It was the one required for the poll tax in all provinces. That was, of course, the tax that had provoked Judas the Galilean's famous revolt uh, in AD 6. The poll tax was probably one denarius a year for each person. So here it is. Uh, It's got the image of the emperor. They happen to have one on them, and they produced it for Jesus. And Jesus says, so whose picture is that on that coin? And they say, now it's interesting, they don't say Caesar, they say Caesar's. 
meaning it belongs to him. It's of him, the coin belongs to him. And so they've half answered their own question, haven't they? When he asks them whose image is on that and they say it belongs to Caesar, they've half answered their own question with their own mouths. Oh, that Jesus. Oh, that Jesus. He catches the wise in their folly, doesn't he? And so uh, he comes the admonition in verse 21b. And he says to them, therefore repay the things of Caesar to Caesar and the things of God to God. Now here's where I come back to what I asked you to remember. What did they say? They say, is it lawful to what? To give to Caesar. And what does he say? He says, repay. In other words, to give back. Because he's saying, it's Caesar's coin. So give Caesar Caesar's coin. There's his image on it. He produced it. It's his. Give it back to them. So he's saying that he is owed owed that tax and it's proper to give him that tax because that tax belongs to him. So a believer would sin in not paying that tax. And we'll see that in the New Testament as well where we're commanded to pay taxes as well to Caesar in Paul's case when he wrote that. But so it would have been a sin to withhold his money from him. But what's the other part? He says, and the things of God to God. Now, we might well say, well, actually everything belongs to God. And that's absolutely true. But I think that Jesus was being a little more specific than that. What had been his question? Whose image is that? So where's God's image? Human beings. We're in God's image. So when Jesus is saying, give God's things to God, what's he talking about? Yourselves. God owns you. Give yourself to God. And don't be so obsessed with money. Give yourself to God. Give Caesar his coin. And that's his conclusion. (laughs) That's his response. Uh, Was this a good day for them? It was not a good day for them. You know, it's actually never a good day for a person who's trying to outsmart Jesus. Pro tip. Pro tip, that's never, never going to work. Even if it seems to for a few minutes or a few decades, it's never going to work. So letter C, we see striking the stage. We've been using theater terms. Stage was set. The play was played. It was a disaster. And so it's time to just tear the stage down. And that's what we see in verse 22. And when they heard, they marveled, and they left him and went away. That did not work out well. And there's a number of scriptures I alluded to one that, uh, that say that you know, they should have really expected this. Job 5.13, Job, Job 5, he catches the wise by their own craftiness, and the counsel of the twisted is quickly thwarted. Indeed he did. 1 Corinthians 1.19, quoting Scripture, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And 1 Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Job 5.13, 1 Corinthians 1.19, 1 Corinthians 3.19, and that's exactly what happens here. They think themselves so wise. They have this foolproof plan, and Jesus just unravels it, unravels it all over them. And the only thing that they can do is just slink off and lick their wounds. So what are a couple of things that we can learn from this? Roman numeral 2, applying the truth. Now, this could be a series of very long studies, but I just want to suggest some ideas to you uh, and some applications to you from what we see here in this uh, narrative about Jesus, his encounter with the Herodians and the Pharisees. First of all, we're taught in the New Testament that Christians are in the world. Indeed, Christians are in the world. And we see that in a number of places. I've singled out John 16.33. John 16.33, Jesus says in his upper room discourse, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's a really deep verse. 
have peace in me, in the world you'll have tribulation. So right there you see we're kind of in two places, aren't we? We have a relationship with him in which we can have peace, but at the same time, where are we? We're in the world, and there what do we have? Tribulation. Well, that sounds like a pretty terrible eternity, doesn't it? Imagine going on and on for endless eons, constantly at peace here and in tribulation there. But I didn't read the whole verse just now, did I? I did a moment ago, but what's the rest of the verse? Take courage, I've overcome the world. So the peace we have in him, that's temporary or permanent? Permanent. The tribulation we have in the world, that's temporary or permanent? Temporary. Because he's already struck the death blow, he's already won the throne. And the, the world's days are numbered. The kingdom of God's days are unnumbered. So he says that in John 16, and John 17:11 is next. John 17:11, in his prayer to the Father, uh, anticipating his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, he says, "And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are." So they are in the world. He recognizes this and simply asks God to keep them while they're in the world. And then verse 15, John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So he doesn't pray that we'll be removed from the world until the day he comes and removes us from the world, which he said he would do in chapter 14. So um, what do we glean from that? So it is his will that we be in the world. And while we're in the world, to be kept uh, during this time in the world, to keep, them, to keep us from the evil one, in it, but as we'll see, not of it, but in it. We are in the world, and so we relate to the world. So uh, what about this impulse? And I think we, uh, any earnest Christian can sympathize with the impulse to, um, to go into a monastic order, right? To just withdraw from the world. Go into some cloistered community behind beautiful stone walls and have vineyards and make your own wine and, you know, whatever, tapestry, whatever, copy manuscripts and withdraw from the world. But that's not what he prays. In fact, it's, it's exactly what he doesn't pray. And by the way, I can tell you by personal uh, sad testimony, going away from everything does not remove the problem <laughs> because we take the world right with us between our ears. As long as we're in the flesh, uh, the world has a... Uh, a walkie-talkie uh, hooked up to us. But that's a bit of a, digre a digression. There, there is a legitimacy to the state. I mean, to, be, to relate to the state. God set up the state. Genesis 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, 6. God made a, a covenant with Noah and all generations after him. This is still a valid covenant, as I understand it. And that covenant includes the penalty of death. Anyone who sheds blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Now, this is the fundamental, ultimate power of government. What does Paul call this? He uses a symbol to refer to this. What does he say? That the, the ruler does not bear what in vain? He does not bear the sword in vain. That's an allusion back to this. This is the ultimate power of, of government. If it's got the ultimate power for execution, then that includes all legitimate laws in between. Uh, lesser than that, you know, like in Proverbs, the rod doesn't mean that spanking is the only thing we can do children to children to correct them, but it, it is the, the ultimate thing to do, but it includes anything we do to correct and instruct uh, their behavior and their, their form their hearts. So uh, it's established by God. In verse 9, Genesis 9, he says, uh, I establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. And Noah is not a Jew, he's the father of the line of the Jews, but he's the father of all nations. So this is still the foundation. In Romans 13, you know Paul says that all authority is established by God, right? And what, what does he draw from that? And he's under a wicked ruler. It's not because he had a great Caesar at that time. He had a terrible Caesar at that time. But he still says. He doesn't say, oh, just, you know, there's all sorts of little involved arguments you can make for not participating and hiding and, and excusing yourself from involvement. No, he, he just says to submit to it because it's established by God. And if we resist what God has established, well, then we're resisting God. 
who established it. So we're in the world. But that government does have a limitation. It's assigned by God, and God is over it. It's not ultimate. And there's a truth to that saying that, that power corrupts. And the tendency of all government is like cancer to grow. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, it all wants, always wants to be bigger. And every legislator wants more laws. Uh, few legislators en- enter uh, wanting to make fewer laws. They want laws, laws named after them. And more law means more control. But that's not its assignment from God to control our, our thoughts. Uh, Paul says it fairly simply in Romans 13, that rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. You want to have no fear of the authority, do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And that's what a government should be about, rewarding good behavior, punishing and limiting bad behavior. Government is there in part to keep a rein on the unsaved impulses of lost men and women. And so in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, Paul tells us to pray for the rulers. To what end? He tells us to pray for them uh, that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Praise that they will continue to give us the freedom to serve God according to conscience. And Peter speaks of it the same way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He, like Paul says, to be subject to the human authority. And he says that they are, that governors are sent by Caesar for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. So that's the purpose of government, and we're called to submit to it, and we certainly can get involved in it. Are there examples in Scripture of, of men who uh, became involved in secular government? When I say secular, really there, there is no such thing as secular. <laughs> Everything's religious. I, I always laugh when I see the phrase faith-based. Everything is faith-based. Literally everything is faith-based, but I digress. Uh, secular meaning not, not a religious Christian government. So do we see people in the Bible, involved in non-Jewish, non-Christian government? I can't hear you. Like who? Hint, what's my name? You say pastor. No, that's not my name. Daniel. Was there a Daniel who was involved in secular government? Well, Well, yes, there was. And Daniel was quite involved. He was highly placed. And still, did he practice his faith? Well, I think he did. And, and you saw that when the government tried to get him to violate his faith, how did that work? He said, nope, you don't have the right to do that. And his friends said, you don't have the right to make us worship idols? And Daniel says, you don't have the right to stop me praying. And he, they were both willing to die for it, but God delivered them. And what does Daniel say to probably unsaved Nebuchadnezzar when he sees this dream of the the judgment that's going to befall him in Daniel 4. He says, break off your wickedness by doing righteousness. He calls on this secular unsaved man to to break off his injustice. And so you see, God does judge secular nations by his standards that we saw in Noah. You see that in Amos. Amos chapters 1 and 2, he announces God's judgment on non-Jewish nations for their violation of the, of the Noahic covenant, basically. God still judges, and so Christians have a role of pointing government towards that. In some forms of government, there's very little that they can do. In our form of government, well, I mean, on paper, on paper, there's a lot we can do, but there are forces at work to make that less and less. But regardless, that is, that is what our calling is. Because fundamentally, God does not recognize a secular realm. What does Psalm 24.1 say? The earth is who's the Lord's and the fullness of it. The world and all those who dwell in it. It all belongs to God. And so our role is to be a witness, is to point it, is to reprove, rebuke, to exhort, to aim it, to do what we can by example and by influence. Daniel did it. Joseph did it. 
Uh, Nehemiah did what he could in his, in his position, so, and so can we. We're in the world, and we have, a, we have a role to perform in the world that doesn't involve just hiding from the world. But at the same time, Roman, um, letter B, we are not of it. Letter B, we are not of it. We are in the world, but we are not of it. So going back to John 17, verse 14, and Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, this is a remarkable thing. Have you, have you noticed this? Have you ever wondered this? Why, especially today, it seems like more every day, why does the state hate Christians so much. Let me rephrase that. Why does the state hate biblically faithful Christians so much? Collaborator Christians, compromised Christians, not so much. But biblically faithful Christians, the state hates. Now you would think, so here's a group of people who obey the laws, they get jobs, they work hard, they raise their families, they pay their taxes. What's to hate? You know, do you ever think that? What's to hate? Well, what's to hate? Well, that's well put. I mean, let's close in prayer. I mean, that, that really is it. It's Jesus. And because of Jesus, it's the fact that they don't control our minds ultimately. They, and that's, they hate that. They want to do that. They want to control our words and our minds and everything. And Christians just, they, and so far as we're loyal to Jesus, we just can't do it. Just like Jesus, just like other believers like Daniel, we just can't do it. They don't own our minds. They don't own our souls. What did Jesus just say? Whose image and likeness am I? Whose image and likeness are you? Caesar's? No. God's. So ultimately only God commands our, ultimately only God commands our ultimate loyalty. He's the only one to whom the answer is always yes, sir. To Caesar, maybe, maybe not. As far as we can, yes. In some cases, no can do. And so uh, we are not of the world. Where is our ultimate citizenship? It's in heaven, Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20. That's where my hope is. That's where my kingdom is. That's where my home is. And it isn't on, uh, on earth. Now, here's an important thing to keep in mind. Philipp, um, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul, by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the day, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." Sojourners and exiles, what does that teach me? This world is not my home. I am just passing through. But while I pass through, I have a ministry to it. But I am just passing through. And there's a, a big topic that you hear today, people talking about Christian nationalism. I personally think it's very confusing. And you'll hear somebody talk advocating Christian nationalism, and you'll think, okay, that makes sense, that makes biblical sense, that makes biblical sense, and then they say a couple more things, you go, wait, no, not that. And you hear somebody opposing it, and you think, okay, I don't see what your problem is. What are you saying? It's a very confusing thing. But here is a very, I think, helpful verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. Listen to this. Hebrews 13, verse 14. For here we do not have Hebrews 13, 14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the one to come. And what does that tell me? I'm not going to be able to build the kingdom of God on earth. I'm not. Here we have no lasting city. And so my, my main effort is not political. My main effort is not political. And James warns us against getting too involved in the world. James 4.4, 4, don't become friends of the world, he says. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. And so that's a dangerous thing to do. Yes, I will 
teach, instruct, I'll protest, I'll write letters, I'll vote, I'll do whatever, whatever lies in my ability to do to influence the course of it. But you know, this is why a Christian, even when an election goes horribly, and we love our, our country, we care about it, we know what's going to happen now, but it's not our, we're not ultimately crushed. And if we are, then that probably tells us we're too invested in the world. I'll give you a, 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 a little spoiler alert, okay? The world goes to hell. I mean, the world goes to hell. No matter what we do, and no matter how many good laws we pass and good people we elect, eventually, the world is just going to be hell on earth. And there's going to be an absolute ruler who wants to control everybody's thoughts and everybody's everything. And then Jesus comes back. And then Jesus comes back. And then the kingdom of God comes. And then the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Lord. And he shall reign forever. So why do we work because we think we're going to turn this into the kingdom of God? No, we do because it serves God. And because it's what God calls us to do. And because it's being faithful and it's being a faithful witness. It's being salt and light. But not because we think we're going to build the kingdom of God on earth. But still we have hope. Why? Because this isn't our hope. My hope is, and your, your hope is, to please God. My hope is to hear well done. Or even if I can just hear good try. I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, 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 you, yes, you, there was effort. <laughs> but I mean, you, our, our ultimate goal is to please God. And not to change the world, but to please God. And we know that God ultimately is victor. We know Jesus is already victor. I have overcome the world, he says. He already owns the right to the world. He already has the title. One day he'll have the throne. We look forward to that day. We serve with a mind to that day. So, to turn back and summarize, be warned by these hypocrites. Take them as a warning. They come up and say all the right things to Jesus, but they don't believe any of them. They call him teacher, but they will not learn from him. They say he is truth and teaches the truth, but they won't be corrected by it. They say that he's unswayed by influence, but they won't follow his model. What do you call Jesus? What do I call Jesus? We call him Lord. Do we submit to him? We call him God. Is he everything to us? We call him our hope, but do we really look to worldly things? You see, let's us not follow their example. Everything we call Jesus let us make sure before God that we can say with all our hearts and mean it and that our lives show it. That we don't hold nice theories about Jesus, but live like the world the time we're not in church. Secondly, remember where we are and for what reason. We're in the world to be lights in the world and witnesses to Christ, not to settle down and make this our home and put all our hopes and our dreams on it. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We wait for a king and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bolt of bright light truth from the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him. What a wonder he is. What, how, how great it is to have him as our Lord and Savior. To have a Lord and a Savior that we, won't, we know will never fail and will never be anything but true to him and true to yourself. We can put all our hopes, and unlike our human leaders, he will never be inconsistent. He'll never be flattered. He'll never uh, make a false move, but he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that he'll help us to be faithful, not to love the world, but to be faithful witnesses to you in the world, to serve you in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.